Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Now, as we come to this section of Luke chapter 3, what you need to know is that these are the beginning words now of John the Baptist in um, the Gospel of Luke. Previous to this, John had been described in a good number of ways um, and had um, by, by um, the angel Gabriel, by... Um, by his like mother and father, uh, by the texts at different point, but now we get John's own words, and his words parallel uh, the description of him uh, as relates to the text that we looked at last week, uh, namely the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet in verses four through six there, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, as we looked at that text, what we saw is that um, he is being explicitly compared to uh, the Old Testament prophets. He's being written about in a way similar to uh, Elijah. But now we get his message, and his message parallels very much uh, the Old Testament prophets, but we see that his message that he brings uh, is in response to those who have come and sought him out. And, and this is important for us to understand because this is, um, this is how we, one of the ways that we know that John is faithful in his role as a prophet. You see, the way that people tend to work is that as soon as they start to build a crowd, as soon as they start to build interest, they really want people to like them and to enjoy them and they want them to stick around. And so when that happens, there is an extremely strong temptation to bend your message and to say exactly what you think will keep the people there. But that's not what John does. John recognizes that he is just the messenger. He is not the one who is giving, uh, he's not the creator of the message. He's not the one who is giving this message. It's not his message. He is relaying the message from one greater than himself. This is a message from God. And so he does not have the authority. He does not have um, the ability to change this message to suit the hearers, but rather he must stay uh, faithful to the truth of this message. And so his message that he brings is quite, quite strong. It's quite um, uh, intense in its tone, in, in its address. Uh, but as he begins to be out in the wilderness and as the people begin to gather to him, a bit of a crowd begins to develop. Uh, and so he turns now to the crowd um, and he addresses three groups of people. One, we have the general crowd. Two, we have uh, a group of tax collectors. And then third, we have um, soldiers uh, who were also there. Now, <clears throat> verse 7 uh, outlines it for us this way. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, first, I want you to notice this. John has not come anywhere close to where these people are. 
He is in the wilderness. He's at the river um, there. He is baptizing people, uh, likely here in the in the Jordan River. And as people come out to him, as they seek his baptism, they're coming out knowing what he is doing. He sees them coming to him, and he says, "You're not going to approach on your own terms." You're not going to come with your own stipulations and say, you know, I will be baptized, but if it can be done in this way or that way, he says, if you are going to approach the baptism that I offer, the baptism that God has asked me to perform, it will be on his terms. And so as he as he addresses this first group of people, uh, this is the, the framework in which he's working. This is the mindset that he has. And so it tells us in verse seven, he said, therefore, to the crowd that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now, this first group is simply described as being the crowd, the crowd, like the group of people here. <clears throat> if you look at um, some of the other gospels, you see a little bit more descriptiveness around this section. And it seems that maybe perhaps Luke uh, writes this in such a way so as to give a broader summary of uh, everybody who was here. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew and Mark uh, make note that people from the surrounding communities had traveled out to uh, be baptized in uh, Judea and Jerusalem. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, uh, he specifically notes that um, the Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, were present for this. Uh, and then more specifically, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, um, we we are told specifically that John sees the, the scribes and the Pharisees or the Sadducees and the Pharisees coming, and he he turns his gaze to them and he looks at them directly when he speaks. So he sees their them approaching, and then he says, "Okay, now here's a message for you specifically." So as John speaks to the crowd uh, that comes, uh, there are those who will hear his message, but it seems as if. Um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are also people that he particularly has in mind here uh, as he makes these remarks. Uh, if you recall, remember, he is preaching a baptism uh, of, of repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sins. Um, he's calling people to, be, to recognize that they can uh, be forgiven for sin, not just through the sacrificial system, but to repent of their trust in that system, which is kind of the, the framework, the entirety of what the Sadducees and the Pharisees had built their uh, work and their reputation on, being keepers of the law. And so as they come out, um, it seems as though uh, John sensed among this group of people that not everyone was sincere that they were coming with hidden motives, that they were coming with um, wanting to show up and uh, blend in with the crowd, uh, wanting to uh, be a part of this group of people, that, but they weren't actually uh, pursuing the Lord in heart. Uh, and and he, he discerns who those people are. Um, you know, as, as, we were, as we were singing this morning, every time we uh, kind of get to the first, the first Christmas um, carol of the of the season, everybody's like a little bit standoffish because it's like, okay, like I'm like vaguely know these. I'm kind of getting there, and I, I, you know, I remember in the previous years where we would uh, have the opportunity to meet in person. It's always that first song is just kind of like a little bit extra quiet. People aren't really sure, and and 
it almost seemed like there's kind of this uh, parallels this uh, this scene in the in the movie Elf towards the end where they're supposed to be singing to produce Christmas cheer, right? But then we find that the one guy who's uh, kind of had the bad attitude the whole time. He wants to be a part of the crowd with everybody, but he's not singing really. He's just moving his mouth, and his son's like, "You're not singing. You're just moving your mouth." He's like, "We're all singing." He's like, "You're just, you're just, you're just mouthing the words." And he's like, "No, I am singing." He's and he's like, and they have this this little argument, and it seems like that's kind of what what happens here with John. He 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 looks over and he's like, "Okay, I know you guys are here, but it doesn't seem like you're pure in heart that you sincerely want this." Like maybe you're coming out to say like, oh yeah, I went out to go see John with all of you guys, but you weren't actually here to be changed and transformed. You're not actually here to repent of your sins. And that can be a perspective that we often all hold, you know, um, as we come into this season, as even uh, just at all times, as we approach our scriptures, approach the scriptures in the morning, as we read our Bibles, it's just kind of, sometimes it's just, we're going through the motions, right? But we're not really trying to put in the work. We're not actually trying to like know the Lord. We're not actually trying to, to hear from him. We're just trying to check a box. And the Lord doesn't need us to check that box. He doesn't need us to do that. He's interested in developing a relationship with us. He's interested in meeting us in his word each morning. He's not interested in simply having us go through the mechanics of something. It's about the relational aspect. And this is what John's getting at here. This is about laying down your life, about repenting from your own pride, from your own identity, and coming to be anchored in the truth of the work of God. And so as this group of people comes out, John begins to realize that not all of these people were sincere. There's a lot of people in this group uh, who he calls brood of vipers who are, they're just pretending. They're not wanting to actually pursue, um, pursue God's way. Uh, and so he characterizes them as a brood of vipers, which is basically to say, like, you are all baby snakes, right? You're born of, of a chief viper, a destructive and poisonous, uh, you know, creature, and you're born out of that. And so you're, you are evil and destructive in character, that you are um, without, uh, without any goodness within you in that, in that aspect. And this is kind of what he's getting at here. Later, as the, as the Gospels move on, we'll see that, um, you know, Jesus often calls out the religious leaders as being of their father, the devil, the serpent, right? And so this is uh, a similar little foreshadowing of that same perspective, that same uh, avenue that they tend to go down. This is an initial warning that they receive, but we'll see uh, how they respond. So this challenge goes out to this group of people. Uh, he's speaking to the crowd here and he turns his attention to it seems a particular group and says you brood of vipers and then he says who warned you to flee from the wrath to come he puts this statement out there in such a way to so as to make us feel i mean if you if you're kind of reading this on you know in a in a very straightforward fashion you're kind of just like seems like he's upset that they figured out that there's going to be judgment and like they're coming out here right like who, who, who let you know that there was wrath coming? Why are you here? Like, you're supposed to like, just stick over there where you're going to, you're going to be punished. Um, and in a sense, um, John is communicating the importance of uh, this wrath to come, warning of that, but he's also simultaneously uh, helping them understand that 
that simply going through the motions with baptism is also not going to save them, right? He's kind of putting it back at them and saying, has somebody told you that you're going to be able to escape from the coming judgment just by simply coming out here and being baptized? Like, okay, you did the sacrifices before, check. Okay, oh, you're, there's this new thing that also might protect you. You want to come out and be baptized by that? Okay, you're going to go through the motions there and check that box. You're going to get baptized. Uh, but what John's really getting at here is that it's not just about the, the physical action. It's about the actual mode of the heart, the posture of the heart. The baptism is a symbol of repentance. It's a, it's a symbolic work of repentance, right? There's forgiveness of sins, and there is a baptism of repentance that you are declaring that you are not going to trust in your own work, in your own efforts, in the sacrificial system. And this was not something that this group of people who are described as a brood of vipers are uh, seemingly willing to do. They are not willing to uh, reject their own works, but they are seeking to come and get the protection that they believe baptism offers without doing the work of repentance. Now, John does reference that there is judgment coming, right? He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He makes this, this um, confirmation of what is understood, he says, you have rightly understood that there is wrath to come, that there is judgment to come. <clears throat> and, and this word wrath here that's used is connected with the Old Testament prophets who warned of God's judgment upon the unrighteous, upon those uh, who it's most closely connected with the day of, of final judgment, the day of the Lord. If one text you can look at, uh, to see this is Isaiah chapter 13, uh, verse 9, uh, which reads, Behold, the day of the Lord comes. Right? So first it's giving us the context. The day of the Lord, there it is, comes cruel with wrath. So there's that same word there connecting it that he's using uh, in this here. And fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. So the judgment of the Lord will come upon those who have trusted in their own righteousness, in their own way. And this will come at a certain point. And he's connecting this. Uh, remember, this is an, an Old Testament prophet who's saying it. And John's saying it in a similar uh, perspective as uh, the framing of an Old Testament prophet. Uh, also in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 1, uh, we read, For behold, the day is coming. That's the day of the Lord there burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Now I want you to, I want you to save that there in your mind. We've got the day of the Lord coming, arrogant evildoers, stubble means burned by fire, something burned by fire. Uh, but then we also get this description of this wrath uh, that will leave neither root nor branch. Okay, so bookmark that little root nor branch in your mind. Because as we come into verse 8 of Luke chapter 3, we get John beginning to bring in some agrarian language. He speaks to uh, uh, the, the cultivating of a vine. And as we move through, he'll speak to the roots. Okay, so verse 8. 
he tells this crowd, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So he's speaking and saying, you need to not just say, I came here for the work of the baptism and I got my thing and I'm out. But he says, this has to be a continuing work. He calls for obedience, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You've got to demonstrate behavior that is the natural result of the truly changed and transformed heart. The, the only way that, that um, we see repentance real is, is marked as real uh, or, or demonstrated as real is when it's connected to a turning away from the direction that you were heading and heading in the opposite direction. You're moving away from that which you were heading towards previously. Uh, it's connected to this actual movement. There's concrete action that's directed um, or that's connected to this idea of repentance. And then as he's saying this, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, he, he, he knows almost what they're thinking in their hearts because he doesn't just say, you know, I know you're going to say that you're a part of like the tribe of Israel and the sacrificial system and all the stuff. And like you are bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. But he begins to come straight out and offer a warning against this error that they might um, be tempted to trust in. In verse eight, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So John brings this warning and he says, don't even think about trying to say, we've got Abraham as our father. Of course, of course, we're like bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. Of course, we're saved from, from the wrath to come because like we are descendants of Abraham. What, what John has uh, been getting at this whole time, um, and in, in even from the introduction of John, is that the uh, most prestigious uh, religious pedigree, the best religious heritage, is not a means of protection from the judgment of God. This is not about being connected to people by birth, but rather it's being connected to Christ by the new birth right? This idea of repentance is not about repenting and trusting in your ability to obey the law or in your um, family heritage, but rather that you've got to demonstrate a transformed life in heart. You've got to uh, demonstrate true repentance that will bear fruit, right? That's why he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he tells them, look, uh, the heritage is not even close to saving you because if God wanted to, if God wanted to do something, he's not even limited to saving the descendants of Abraham. He can do whatever he wants. He says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He's like, God wants to bring up new, new family of Abraham to keep this covenant and to uh, carry this out. He could be like, okay, well, you guys are all disobedient. I'm going to bring up a new people out of these stones and they will be an obedient people who will uh, walk with me. He looks around and he sees all the stones that are scattered <clears throat> on uh, the banks of, of, the, of the river there. And he tells them, you guys, if you are trusting in your heritage, this is absolutely foolish because God is absolutely in the business of taking uh 
inanimate dead objects in producing life. He is an expert at taking something that is without life, that is dead in its trespasses and raising it to life. And this is exactly what he does in Christ. This is what he, exactly what he does uh, in the work of incorporating the Gentiles. He's like, okay, Israel, you guys don't want to walk with me? I'm going to take all of these other people from all these other nations. I'm going to swoop them all up into my family. They weren't pursuing me. They were out there doing their own thing. They were far from me. They were dead in their trespasses. And yet he is willing to swoop them all up into his family to invite them into knowing him and to enjoying him. The stones are described as these dead, inanimate uh, objects, which God brings miraculously to life. What this tells us is that the stones, they don't do anything to participate in the work of uh, coming to life. It is all God's work. It is all God's idea. It's all God's accomplishment. He is the one who does it from start to finish. The stones do nothing. They participate in nothing. And so he tells this group of people who believe themselves to be the most righteous on the basis of their family heritage, of their practice of the religious system, in their participation in the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the rituals and the rites. He's like, God could just take these stones. They are not really anything special. He can create them because he's God and he can make it his work. They've not done nothing to belong. He can make them and bring them <clears throat> in fulfillment of this promise. <clears throat> this message would have been a message that would have would have been, uh, you know, cutting straight into the heart of those who were wanting to trust in their system. And John fully intended this, right? This is why he continues in verse eight. <clears throat> Remember, you're supposed to be holding that that bookmark in your mind. <clears throat> um, from Malachi chapter four about the root in our branch. Now he comes to verse nine of Luke three. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So now we get this connection. What was said there in uh, the book of Malachi there that the day is coming, um, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, right? So you have to bear fruit. So there's the, there's the, uh, the branch part. It's the picture of kind of this vine, this leafy vine and in this um, flourishing branch. But then now we have the focus on the root, the system uh, that he turns his attention to. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every, there, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the idea here in verse 9 is that there are trees that will bear fruit and trees that will not bear fruit. That the trees that do not bear fruit, the fruitless vine, will receive destruction. The fruitless vine will receive destruction. Again, anchored very deeply in the Old Testament. So John is speaking in the same language, uh, in the same tone, in the same messaging as previous prophets. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. <clears throat> uh, Yet I planted you a choice vine, 
holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Right? This is speaking here of, of Israel. Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. So there's this vine that's been going and it's been trying to, to clean itself up and make itself look good. But he's like, you've, you've been trying to clean yourself up, but you're, like, you're still a stain. You, you haven't been able to do the work. You've washed the outside, but the inside is the problem. You were planted as a choice and pure vine, but now you've become a wild vine. You've gone your own way. And so uh, there's this description here of God seeing that, right? And when God sees that, we're told, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the axe is ready to fall. The axe is ready to fall at the root of the tree. And the axe is one that makes distinctions, right? This isn't something that is a judgment that is coming to all, but it is only aimed at those fruitless trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, right? It's not the ones that do bear good fruit. It's not the ones that are trying to participate in, in acting in the, its proper and right form and honoring the Lord, but it's the ones who are not. The fruitless trees are not only cut down, but they're also cast into the fire. Again, this is uh, verbiage language that is connected to the Old Testament. I'll give you two passages here. Um, <clears throat> one from Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16. The Lord called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed. Isaiah 66, verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with the flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. So then again, speaking there, if you read Isaiah 66, there's like a whole bunch of crossovers with uh, the entirety of John the Baptist story. <clears throat> um, but here we find that this is another uh, mark of the Lord bringing this judgment by fire the wrath, the judgment, the fire to come is coming upon those who are not bearing fruit, who are going their own way. Uh, and the ax will chop them down and they will be thrown into the fire. Now, the question then is, if you've heard this warning, what then shall you do? And this is exactly the, the proper response of this uh, summary, this group of people in the, in the crowd. It's not just the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, but all who hear, they hear this and they're like, Okay, we get, we get it. What do, what do you need us to do? And this is what they ask in verse 10. The crowd asked him, what then shall we do? So the crowd presses John to like lay it out for us. What do you want us to do? And, and what we see here is that in asking this question, the crowd rightly understands what John is trying to say. <clears throat> they don't just say, um, they don't just say like, okay, Sounds good. Can you baptize us now? No, they clearly understand that more is required than baptism. So they're like, okay, explain to us now how we are supposed to, to act in response to the information that you've just given to us. Explain to us how we ought to proceed um, in, with this new knowledge. 
And, and so they ask this and John comes back um, with an answer that perhaps they wouldn't expect. You would think that John would be like, okay, well, here's all the, <clears throat> here's all the uh, things that you need to do, perform these religious ceremonies and rituals. But instead, John's reply is incredibly practical. <clears throat> Super practical. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Okay. So John replies to them about what they should do. And he doesn't call the crowd to become monks. He doesn't say like, well, if you want to like, you know, be um, bear fruit and you want to um, act in repentance, then, you know, you should like give up everything and you should go to a monastery and become monks and withdraw from the world and don't be corrupted. He doesn't ask them to <clears throat> practice religious ceremonies or um, <clears throat> rituals and different rites that they might perform. He doesn't call them back to the sacrifices that they were already familiar with. He doesn't say return to the, to the temple and perform the sacrifices. But instead, he calls them to reorient themselves to completely change their identities from being self-seeking to self-sacrificing. Change your identity from being self-seeking to self-sacrificing. In other words, he asks them to mirror God's character and to have their identity rooted in God's work on their behalf and God's faithfulness to his word. He phrases it in a practical way, but the implications of this can only be practiced uh, in this particular way. He says, he says, you've got to be so focused <clears throat> on being self-sacrificing that you're not considering yourself primarily, but you're looking to see and meet the needs of others. He is describing here, in short, what Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2, how Christ came in the incarnation Though he was God in being and form, though he saw our plight, he saw our need, he laid aside all that he was deserving of, all of his rights, all of his privileges, everything that he was deserving of, he put those things aside and became one of us. He came a man in the likeness, he came in the likeness of man <clears throat> in the form of a servant, in the form of a servant, right, and was obedient. So this is what God also calls his people to, to come in, to approach others in this way, to have these interactions where we are self-sacrificing, not self-seeking, not getting what we want, but seeing how we can meet the needs of others. And when we do this, we're doing it out of God's character, not out of our desire to be righteous or to prove our righteousness, but doing it out of mirroring God's character. <clears throat> because the way that he, he puts he puts this um, call that's practical around verse 11 that we wouldn't also naturally recommend or naturally understand. He says here this, whoever has two tunics 
is to share with him who has none. So let's just take this first section. What is he talking about here? Whoever has two tunics, share with them who has none. This is the idea of if you, in this time, you would have like multi-layered garments. You would be, you would be wearing, <clears throat> the idea of a tunic here is basically like an undershirt, right? So you would put on your tunic, then you would put on another tunic, and then you would put on like an outer shirt, and then you might put on like an outer coat. So like you maybe have like four layers basically here. And then like if you were working like in a field or different jobs, you might have like another one that kind of like might help insulate, like be like basically like your apron. You might have like another, another um, like kind of outer garment there. And, and what he's getting at here is that not that you have four or five layers on and that you're going to give, you, you should be giving away one or two or three or four of these. He's basically saying that you don't need two undershirts. Right? You don't need to have two of these things on. Not that, not that you shouldn't have your work apron, not that you shouldn't have your outer garment, not that you shouldn't have in like, you know, if you have these three to or you know, four to five layers on, not that you should only be wearing one or two layers. He basically is asking the call is to remove one layer, just one. The undershirt. You don't use two undershirts. It's not, it, and it technically wasn't necessary. So that's why he's saying that it's something that's, that's extra. And he says that this is something that you can look around. And if you see somebody else who doesn't have that, they are just wearing their like more rough outer garment. And like, they have like three layers on and you see someone in need, you can offer them your extra tunic, your extra undershirt basically to give, give to them. Right. He's not putting this in the position to where he's saying, okay, well, everybody should only have like two garments each or like these multi layers don't need to happen. He's basically saying you might have one of these extra things that's literally not needed and you just have it on you. Um, you should share that with other people. Now, giving away of this, uh, of this tunic, again, is, falls in line with the same call of the Old Testament prophets. John is acting in this heritage uh, that he is speaking of or speaking within. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 7, the call to those who are described as righteous before God are, are described this way, that they do not oppress anyone, Ezekiel 18, verse 7, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. So, uh, many of the Old Testament prophets speak of this idea of uh, connected, of giving away of the garments or caring for um, for others. Uh, but we also get this description of uh, the importance of repentant individuals caring for the needs of um, our neighbors in the New Testament as well. This is the same emphasis that continues to this day. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. <clears throat> Let the thief no longer steal, 
but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may some, have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. I love this verse. This verse right here is, this is the motive trap of the New Testament right here. Like if you want to find one that is exposing of motives, it's this one right here. This, how you think about this verse is extremely helpful <clears throat> because you could take this a good number of ways. And if you parallel it to many of the things in, in our um, society and culture, if you parallel it to your own life, this can be applied in so many different ways. Um, but what we get here is that is this, there is a man who is a thief. He's stealing, right? And he's taking things for some reason. Maybe he's stealing because he doesn't have enough. Um, it, he doesn't have the opportunity to have an occupation that provides as richly as others. Maybe he has things that he wants that he sees and covets that he's taking them, taking things from other people. Uh, maybe he's, uh, you know, what the old test, what the scriptures would describe as slothful, that he's lazy. He doesn't want to participate in the community. And so he's trying to take a shortcut. <clears throat> um, there's a number of reasons why this individual could be the thief in stealing, but it doesn't just say stop stealing. The scriptures tell us in Ephesians 4.28, let him labor, let him work, doing honest work with his own hands. So don't make other people do it. You do it yourself, thief. So stop stealing, do work, do it yourself, but you don't do it for yourself. You do the work, you do it yourself to the best of your ability, but it's not for you. Because it explicitly says here, so that you may have something, someone, something to share with anyone in need. Not st stop stealing so you can provide for yourself. Stop stealing and work with your own hands so you can meet the needs of others. <laughs> like what a crazy verse. It just totally skips over like what this, what this individual might want to be accomplishing. Well, I guess I'll start working. I'll find a good job that pays a lot so that way I don't have to steal. That way I can get all the things that I need and want. It exposes the heart motive to be independent of, uh, of God's provision in our lives. It exposes the heart motive of our desire to be independent from other people. Because it says you ought to work as hard as you possibly can so that way you can serve and meet the needs of others. Like what a crazy verse. Don't steal so you can work honestly and give to others. This verse here is exactly what we ought to do as repentant individuals. We are to care for the needs of our neighbors. And as you see here that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, as you see here in uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 11, <clears throat> whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. This call to share with the community is voluntary, voluntary, but it's also a reflection of uh, what's in your heart. It reveals what's in your heart, right? If you have food and you're unwilling to share it with um, other people, 
with your neighbor, um, <clears throat> then you know you're not reflecting properly as members of the household faith. Now let's put some other caveats around this here. Not caveats, but let's put some clarifications. Most of the time here, um, most of the time here, when the when the scriptures talk about us. Uh, meeting the needs of our neighbor or caring for our neighbor or loving our neighbor. It is most frequently speaking of those who are within the household of faith. It's not most frequently speaking of uh, those who are just random who approach us. It's mostly spent on focusing that those who also are to be like-minded in heart in, in pursuit of Christ uh, have their needs met. Now, why would that be? Why would we want to be more considerate of those people who are within the church rather than those people who are outside of the church? Why would that be? Well, the main reason is because if we, as a collective church, are laser-focused on helping other people meet Jesus, then we can remain focused there if we, our practical needs are being met within the body of Christ itself, right? If someone's like, hey, like I really wanted to um, you know, connect with this other person on Zoom and like, <clears throat> you know, who's not a Christian and uh, kind of be there for them and continue to disciple them and be build this relationship and see what the Lord might do. Except for like, I got to like handle these other things and provide for my family. It's like, like that should not, we don't want to like make that a hindrance from someone building this bridge. So someone else in the community might be like, oh, no worries. Like I already went grocery shopping and like, here's an like, extra little bag of groceries. Like, you do your Zoom and we'll take care of that. Our opportunity to be generous and share with one another is to facilitate greater gospel opportunities within the church. It's not about not being generous with the world outside who are not Christians. It's about enabling our people within the church to maximize their gospel opportunities by not being so distracted by the burdens of day-to-day -day life, right? Not being having to be stressed out about going through uh, the, the practicalities of life. If someone's like, oh, like I need to go and bake bread. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, I got an extra bread here. Pow, take that. Now you have more time to invest <clears throat> in things that God is calling you to. So it's, it's primarily aimed at that, making sure that, that as a whole, the body of Christ is healthy, that we are exhibiting that love for one another that we're told in the scriptures would help other people see Jesus within us. When, we, when the scriptures uh, tell us that other people will, will know that we are his by the way that we love one another, that happens through the sharing of goods, sharing of, <clears throat> of opportunities uh, to serve one another. And that allows other people to see like, wow, that's a community that takes care of each other. It's not about not taking care of the outside world. It's about first uh, loving and serving one another so that way we can be as faithful as possible externally. <clears throat> now, verse 12, John turns his attention to the second group of people. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Now. I'm sure that you've heard <clears throat> a little bit about the tax collectors um, in the scriptures. And man, boy, were they a hated bunch. Almost everybody hated these guys. Um, 
because the way that the tax collectors generally got into power was through kind of a, an auction. It was a bidding system. And they were putting up, it, it was a highly political system. But basically the way that it worked is this. Depending upon the region, depending upon what was happening in, in a specific region, um, there were tax collectors and then there were kind of under tax collectors who would do that work. Rome uh, would be instituting their tax that they required at a set amount. And then the Roman governors had the ability to uh, appoint various people in their various regions of rule to collect taxes on the, um, for them. And then those people had the ability, depending upon how many, um, how many regions those were divided into, had the ability to collect, uh, to appoint other people to collect taxes uh, in those specific regions. So the long and short of it is that depending upon where and when you lived, you could be operating in a system to where there were somewhere between six to eight levels of taxation that were happening. Six to eight levels of taxation to where you could have someone who was, uh, who was asking you to pay taxes in the specific local village. Um, and then they were zooming out a little bit further to that particular city, to that particular uh, county, to that particular state, to that particular region, and then to that particular country, and then to the empire. So there could be a good number of different, uh, you know, like local tax rates that are happening there in that. And each, uh, each one of those would be taxing what is required by the person above them but then they would also add on their own amount because otherwise they wouldn't get paid, right? So they would tax, they had the ability to, to charge whatever they wanted in order to receive uh, what they wanted to take away from the people. And so the tax rate could be astronomical, like absolutely ridiculous because you're paying a percentage tax for each level of those the highest level not taking into account that the other people are are taxing at a higher amount there to offset the how much is going back to uh, to the empire. Now, that being said, uh, many of the occupations required travel and some of the tax collectors required that if you were in one city and you had trade in one city, you paid taxes there. But then you went to another city, then you paid taxes in that one too. Even if you had just paid taxes in the previous city, if you had business and you went to the other city, you had to pay. So if you had a, a job where you were importing or exporting or you were traveling for uh, your work to bring goods and services to other regions, you were taxed like crazy. And so here, uh, this group of people were absolutely um, despised by, uh, by almost everybody, um, especially those uh, tax collectors who had Jewish backgrounds. If they were um, Jews who were tax collectors, they were, you know, basically discarded as members of 
uh, Israel and were considered traitors um, and were like the, you know, if at all, were the very absolute lowest of society. And so they come out um, to be baptized as well. But then they ask the same question. What, what, what should we do? And John replies back to them with a more straightforward answer as well. He says, collect more than you're authorized, no more than you're authorized to do. He tells, he doesn't say, okay, well, you guys can't be tax collectors anymore. He doesn't say that, oh, you've got, you've got to change your occupation because the occupation that you're in is, is, you know, historically fraught with, um, with, you know, taking advantage of people. But instead, he says that you ought to be the most honorable, the most fair, the most just tax collector that you can be. That's his response. He doesn't put them in a position where they're allowed to escape and say, okay, well, like, I just won't do that anymore. Instead, he puts them in a position that says, you've got to collect taxes as faithfully as you can, but without extorting people, without extra fees, without um, any kickbacks or, you know, or, or payoffs or bribes. Now, this would put these people in a position to say, okay, well, like, how am I going to provide for myself then? It put, how am I going to like take care of my family? I'm used to getting this amount or I'm used to taking this much off the top. If I just give all of that back and I'm not very, making very much extra money, how, how am I going to take care of my, myself? How am I going to take care of my family? And he says, that's not really something that you're going to need to be worried about here because you're fundamentally trusting that God will keep his word, that he is going to take care of you. He is going to be the one that meets all of your needs, right? Because for one to repent, it means that you're going to live life differently, that you're going to turn around, that you're going to go the opposite way. And so if you were trusting in wealth and trusting in riches and trusting in your relationship and trusting in uh, these systems that you've, that you've set up to uh, create bribes and kickbacks to other people to get what you want and to manipulate the system, he says, all of that needs to be gone. And you're going to trust in Christ alone now he calls them to live absolutely differently. But yet this call mirrors that same call um, of these that he gave to the crowd. Live in such a way where you are acting justly in fairness to everyone. You see someone has a need, you're going to meet their need. You're not going to rely on providing your extra tunic for yourself. Here, tax collectors, don't worry about providing for yourself. Verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So we find now the third group, soldiers. Now, what in the world are the soldiers doing here? Well, first off, you need to know that these are not Roman soldiers. This is not what's happening here. These soldiers <clears throat> could have come from three different groups, perhaps, um, historically. They could have come from um, Herod Antipas's uh, army in Perea, which, which would have included foreign troops as well. So this could have been the first offering, um, the, the first instruction to Gentiles in this way here. <clears throat> um, it could have been the Judean police uh, who were these soldiers were a part of. 
but it also could have been soldiers who assisted and protected the toll collectors, right? And makes sense because it seems like the advice to them is also connected to uh, their financial status. It seems like maybe they were shaking people down at the same time as the tax collectors were. And so John tells them, <clears throat> here's two things that you shouldn't do. And here's one thing that you should do. First, <clears throat> do not extort money from anyone by threats. He's like, if you're a soldier, uh, don't, don't be like threatening people to get money from them. Threatening them with violence, um, you know, trying to intimidate them. Second, he says, do not extort money from anyone by false accusation, right? Uh, false accusation here, um, it means uh, to bear false witness. Um, the actual term that this comes from um, is a kind of hilarious, hilarious Greek translation. It actually means to, uh, to shake the figs. Um, the idea is that you have a fig tree and you can't see the figs. And, and so you're like shaking it so as to like bring them out and see where they're like um, moving more so you can identify them and bring them in and harvest them. Uh, and what they're saying here is that these soldiers may have been in a situation where they are coming to people on their, you know, uh, kind of blackmailing people. Oh, I saw you do this, or I can bring this to the authorities, or, you know, the religious leaders wouldn't like this very much if you knew this, and it's going to cost you here. And, uh, you know, they were kind of uh, wheeling and dealing with the community on the basis of trying to keep their mouth shut on uh, it, you know, in exchange for payment. And so they're trying to gain this advantage over people and to uh, take money from them. But the long and short here is that these soldiers are abusing their position uh, by taking advantage of people um, from a financial perspective. That they are trying to pull extra resources out of this group of people. And here's what John tells them. Don't extort people. Um, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. And then he tells them, be content with your wages, right? Be content with your wages. Don't take money away from, from other people. Don't try to steal this money away. He doesn't say, stop being a soldier. He doesn't say that you should move away from that, but you should be content with what you're getting paid. Now, the military wage, what a soldier would get paid um, per day was for the basic provision for that day, for food, sustenance, what you needed exactly for that day. And when you get exactly what you need for that day and you look around and you see like, okay, well, like maybe I could get a little extra. There's a temptation there to try to take advantage of your position and to look at, you know, giving yourself a little extra by using, you know, intimidation by uh, extorting people. Who can I intimidate? Who can I threaten to get what I want? And the soldiers at this time uh, were certainly um, subject to these kind of three things as they were interacting with the community, perhaps also as as we said, connected to the tax collectors. And so it would have been easy for them to uh, extort or slander um, members of the community just because of they were discontent with their wages. 
but John tells them, don't, don't extort, don't slander, don't be discontent. But rather, be content with your wages. And I think as we, as we consider this last one with the soldier, it's a radical, um, it's a radical word for us. Be content with one's wages because we're exactly the type of people uh, to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to put a, I'm going to, I'm going to put myself in a position to protect myself for the future. You know, I'm not sure if I'm going to have, have enough, or I want a little bit more. I see these other people that have these things and I want that also. But the, the wage for the soldier was basic provision of food, sustenance for that day. That's all that they needed for that day. Because they were only promised that day. And if they made it to tomorrow, they would get what they needed for tomorrow. And as we are uh, a part of the Lord's family, that's what he has promised to us in the fullness of his spirit, that we would have exactly what we need for our day, exactly what we need to face the day, and that we don't need to worry about tomorrow, but that he would give us the fullness of what we need for our current situation and our current moment. And when we come to tomorrow, if tomorrow requires more than today, his provision will be more than enough for that day. But we won't need that provision until that need arises. You see, a lot of times we put those, uh, you know, we, we try to protect ourselves from having to need God, from having to uh, come to him and be like, okay, well, like I prepared today so that I wouldn't have to need you tomorrow, God. I took care of things today so that way uh, there's no chance that you can fail me tomorrow because I already didn't fail myself. That's our attitude a lot of times. But he's asking us to trust him, to rely on him. This doesn't mean that we should be unfaithful stewards of what he has given to us, but rather we should take those things that we have in excess for today. And when we see others in need, not be afraid to give them because we know that our heavenly father will provide for us tomorrow. What if our excess today and someone else's need today is a part of God's provision for them today. We've got to keep those things in our minds that it's not about us only. We have others who are in our family who might have needs and our excess today might be their provision for today. It's our responsibility to consider how we ought to act in repentance, that we ought to have these outward evidences that our hearts are right before the Lord. Now, as John interacts with these three groups of people, the crowd, the tax collectors, the soldiers, it would have been easy to look at him and be like, John, what's going on, man? You're just like, you just told somebody like, be fair. You could have just been like, you should have declared that these taxes are unjust and unlawful and that the whole system has to be overthrown. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens here at all. Instead, uh, 
John insists on proclaiming the gospel, on anchoring these people in new identity in Christ so that they might be the transformation of society from within rather than through you know, uh, a violent revolution that would come and had tried to come many times through other people prior to John's time. It's about God's people working to reflect God's character in society and to change it from the inside out, much like he changes us from the inside out. He gives us a new heart and that changes our outward actions. And so his call is for all who act in uh, repentance, who all who enter the waters of baptism to be compassionate, loving, fair, just towards others, to not take advantage of other people, um, especially for your own gain, but to be content with what you have and to look to meet the needs of others, to serve others with all that you've given us, just as Christ has served us. So that through his work, we might exchange our poverty for his riches, that we might have true and lasting life in him. Let's pray and we will respond. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, your goodness to us. And Lord, we ask that you would um, lead us into lives of practical repentance, that we would look to meet the needs of others. Um, as you have given to us. And so Lord, we want to consider those who are in the body, how we might enable them to be more faithful uh, with the gospel opportunities that you put before them, that, um, that they might be able to help other people meet Jesus. And Lord, some of, some of us are people who are in need, and some of us are in people who have the opportunity to provide for those needs. And so um, Lord, help help us to be uh, vocal on both of those fronts, to be faithful, to uh, act in humility and ask for that help when we have a need and to uh, speak up and to share when we have um, things to offer to ease the needs of others. And so Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be Christ-like, um, to give you glory in our actions and in our attitudes and we pray that you would be lifted up as we um, relate to one another on the basis of the gospel. We love you. Amen.